You're listening to a Wheels on the Ground production. Hello, and welcome to the eighth episode of Crypt Times. Today on Crypt Times, we will be listening to Shannon Finnegan, a multidisciplinary artist who is working within the disability arts sector, with your hosts, Kayla and Christina. Okay. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Crypt Times. This is Kayla speaking. I'm joined by my co-host, Christina McMullen. And today we have the lovely Shannon Finnegan on our show. Shannon, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> We're thrilled to have you. And uh, for any folks who don't know, would you like to give a little intro about yourself? Yeah, um, I am an artist. Um, my background is in drawing and printmaking, but now I really am kind of all over the place in terms of um, mediums and materials and um, I sometimes make objects, I sometimes still make drawings, sometimes events. Um, and a lot of my work is about my, or I would say is rooted in my lived experience with a physical disability. Um, and I'm really excited about, or interested in the idea of disability culture um, and what, what is kind of like, um, shared among different disability communities um, and also thinking a lot about accessibility um, as a kind of material in in the work um, which is something that I feel like I've learned kind of from my from a community of disabled artists that um, I feel connected to and learn from um, yeah, and I, I live in Brooklyn, New York, but right now I'm in York, Maine. Um, I'm doing a residency at Surf Point Foundation for the next three weeks. So I have the pleasure of looking out the window at the ocean as we record. Oh, so jealous. That's beautiful. Yeah, my, my next question was gonna be like, how are you right now? What's up right now um, in this moment for you? If you wanna kind of ground us in where you're at? I just I just spent a week kind of off, kind of taking a break from work and from email and had some time um, at a cabin in a forested area. So I'm feeling pretty energized right now. I hadn't really stepped away from kind of work in my computer in a while and that felt really good to just kind of um, pause and now come back to, to different projects. Um, and yeah, I'm in a new place. So I'm, I just arrived yesterday. So I'm sort of still uh, getting familiar with this new spot and kind of like figuring out what the next three weeks might um, feel like. It's great. And hopefully it's a break from like the Zoom fatigue and the <laughs> constant online world that we all have been thrust into these pandemic times. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. I, I feel like I have a lot of Zooms, a lot of Zooms scheduled. And I don't know. I, I think I haven't been feeling the Zoom fatigue as much. I mean, I don't have to do like hours and hours and hours on end. Like I know so many people do, especially like teachers and things like that. But mm -hmm. um, so we'll see. Yeah. I, I feel like the next three weeks are still kind of like, very um, freeform and open-ended, but hopefully restful. I am so excited to talk about your work. I know that when we spoke earlier, you said that your work is only possible because of the work of other disabled artists and thinkers, and you're trying to build these networks so that your work isn't only understood in isolation. Um, so I wonder if you wanted to talk a little bit about that before getting into specifics? Yeah, I think I've had this experience um, with a number of different projects where I kind of 
am operating in a space that is dominated by ableism or ableist thinking um, where disabled people are maybe present but not heard or not comfortable um, and that people are excited about my work but that they don't necessarily understand that I'm one of you know hundreds thousands of millions of people who are thinking about these things and have been um, over the past like decades hundreds of years millennia um, and so I think that's been something I think that really saturates my experience that feeling of connectedness and it's always kind of jarring to me when I when I operate in spaces where people are kind of like oh um, kind of like kind of plucking me out of that network in a way that um, yeah it doesn't feel good and so I have been thinking about um, how to really how to clarify those connections within the work itself rather than relying on kind of like my statements or writing around the work mm -hmm. um, and I think also just coming out of like my excitement about what a lot of my peers are doing and and wanting to also like tell people about that or point to that or um so yeah I think and it's it's interesting I heard Alice Shepard talk about this on Contra podcast about the idea of interdependence as like a material in the work which um, feels exciting to me to like or as a kind of aesthetic approach um, and so that's something that I've been yeah just kind of like sitting with and, and thinking about how to um, build into my my practice more something that I find so profound in the, your work is that the aesthetic of it is intentionally and unapologetically crip um, and it's intentionally and unapologetically built for a crip audience. Has that intentionality and unapologeticness been integral to your art practice um, forever? Or was that something that you grew into? I think it's something I grew into. I mean, it, for me, that is comes from this experience that I had growing up, which was that I felt very isolated from other disabled people. I was often um, the only disabled kid in my schools. Um, and, and then I was like looking at mainstream media, which was, you know, had all of these kind of harmful narratives around disability. And um, for a long time, I was really in this like, kind of minimizing approach to my disability where I was like, I just wanna, I felt kind of, I felt embarrassed, I felt ashamed, I was trying to be as kind of mainstream as possible. And it was really when I started to read the work of other disabled writers and thinkers and start to look at art by other disabled people that I really had this huge shift in my understanding of myself and this sense of like, wow, I really wasn't learning about, um, about myself from these kind of more mainstream sources, that that was really happening from, um, yeah, other disabled people. And so that was part of the motivation for me in terms of centering disabled people in the audience is that I had felt the power of being centered as the audience for something. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the way that there can be this kind of like mirroring or reflecting where it's like, something that I had kind of sensed or felt, but hadn't crystallized or um, I hadn't kind of connected different things and, and how mm -hmm. powerful that can be. Um, and so that was a big part of what led me to be like, that's who I want to be speaking to. I want to be speaking to other, um, other disabled people. And I think also just because of, um, and the, the scarcity of, of spaces and experiences where disabled people are centered, um, that it, mm -hmm. it feels exciting to, to do that and, and to, 
um, yeah, to, to kind of have this um, vibrancy that maybe people who don't feel like they have lived experience of disability are able to see, but more of, or, or experience, but more of a kind of like outside looking in feeling rather than um, being at the center. Hmm. Was your introduction and your discovery of disability arts and culture like a slow burn or did you do you recall like a like an aha moment where there was somebody's work or several people's work that you were like yes I was trying to do independent research so I was kind of starting to piece together different people who were making work about disability um but through a friend I met um the artist and activist and educator um, Madison Zalapani and then Madison um, invited me to a DANT meeting which was a disability arts NYC um, mm. meeting so there was there was kind of this organizing happening in New York City um, led by Simi Linton and Kevin Gotkin and so that was just kind of this that was I think of that as kind of this link into disability community for me where I was I connected with Madison and then Madison Kind of like looped me into all of these other things that are happening or were happening and continue to happen and then when it comes to this kind of like change into really centering uh disabled audiences correct audiences has that changed your artistic practice like the process that you put into creating this work yeah very much so i mean i think when i first started making work about disability, I was in such deep denial about my own access needs that I wasn't really even thinking about access. I was so much in this framework of like, it is what it is and I'm just gonna make it work that I, I wasn't really connected to the idea of access. Um, and it was really through starting to think about, okay, who do I want to be able to experience my work and, and thinking about um, disability community um, that I was like, and, and just the lack of accessibility in a lot of existing art spaces, especially kind of like more DIY or um, kind of emerging artist spaces. Um, and really realizing like, oh, if I want my work to be experienced by other disabled people, then I need to be kind of involved in access and that was really where I was like oh there's a really big there's a lot that I don't know about um, other folks access needs and even my own access needs I think I it was also this process for me of being like what actually um, supports my participation in a space or um, an experience and what have I felt like I couldn't ask for that I that I do need or I do want. Um, and so that was um, a big part of the, the shift that happened for me. And now it's like, I see access like, you know, literally everywhere. It's like so much <laughs> a, part of, a part of everything I'm doing in the fabric of my everyday life. It's almost hard to imagine how, what a different mindset I was in before, but um, yeah. Yeah, you really can't turn that off once you start looking for access or lack of it, hey? <laughs> um, Christina and I, in our day jobs, both work in communication roles. And so I think I can speak for both of us and say that we are both huge fans of uh, one of your projects, Alt Text as Poetry. Stunning. Um, would you like to talk about that for a bit and tell our listeners or readers um, what that's all about? Yeah, so Alt Texas of Poetry is a kind of long-term collaborative project. So um, it's a project I do with another um, disabled artist and um, activist and administrator, Bojana Kokliat. Um, and it was definitely connected to, for me, from kind of my side of it, it was connected to the experience that I was having around really um, examining the ways that I was making work 
and the limitations of that. I, I come from a very visually oriented arts training. Um, and so, I, yeah, I was really interested in like why I was working in visual, working visually, whether or not that was important to me. And then also um, thinking about when I'm working visually, how to be proactive about making that accessible and really build that into the project. And was also thinking about online spaces and how um, important those have been for me as kind of like points of connection to, to disability community and arts community and thinking about how, um, yeah, a platform like Instagram that there's like, it's kind of supposedly about photos, but it's really, you know, it's about events. It's about um, kind of connection around moments of everyday life. It's like, there's, there's all of this stuff happening there. Um, and yeah, and I think um, Bojana and I share a lot of um, interest in thinking about access creatively and collaboratively and as something that's kind of ongoing and evolving um, rather than this kind of like compliance oriented mode that's so common around kind of like checking a box. Um, and yeah, and so we were kind of looking around at like existing alt text guidelines and uh, really noticing that that compliance model was really present. Like it was, it felt to me like, um, well, maybe I'll go, I'll back up first and just explain what alt text is in case folks are unfamiliar. Um, so alt text is um, a type of image description. Um, so it's uh, basically a written description of an image posted online. Um, and um, alt text is embedded in the, um, like code of a website. So it's not visually present on a website, it, but someone who's using a screen reader who is having um, the text on the screen read aloud to them. Um, so the screen reader on a website might start with the title and then read the first paragraph of text. And when the screen reader gets to an image, it can't read the image. So it knows to access this piece of information associated with the image, um, which is called the alt text. Um, so basically it's like a, a form of accessing visual information non-visually online. Um, and it's very related to image description, which is kind of a more general term. Um, it's related to audio description, which is description in the context of live performance or film or video. Um, so, or, or verbal description, like a verbal description tour in a museum, they're all kind of related practices. Um, and so, yeah, when, when we were looking at existing alt text guidelines, it felt like a lot of the guidelines were kind of like, if the image is described, if the alt text exists, then it's accessible, like check the box. Mm -hmm. And I think for both Bojana and I, um, yeah, we were kind of like, well, well, what about like the quality of the alt text? Like what is, what about, um, yeah, like what are the kind of details of that? And especially, both coming from arts backgrounds and thinking about um, artworks, which are often fairly complex images and um, seen and interpreted really differently by different people, um, that we wanted to kind of explore that more. Um, Bojana has a little bit of a different perspective. Um, she's the screen reader user, so she has more of a day-to-day -day kind of um, experience with, with alt text. Um, and also, but similar to me, it's also kind of worked, been thinking about access more broadly. Um, and yeah, I think we, we kind of went in with a lot of questions and just kind of came out with more questions um, around how to go about describing images. Um, and for us, the project is really not about us kind of like coming in and being like, okay, so this, these are the guidelines, this is how you do it, but instead trying to um, get people in, uh, well, put alt text on people's radar if they don't know about it already, and then get them kind of thinking about it and practicing. Um, and we've been interested in this idea of poetry um, because 
it felt like there was a lot of kind of existing thinking in the world of poetry that was related to alt text writing. Um, and so we really wanted to kind of like draw from that or, or use poetry as kind of a framework to get people thinking about the language that they're using, thinking about the tone, the voice, um, trying out some more experimental things. Um, yeah, and so the project, the form of the project has kind of like taken a lot of different shapes. Um, we originally developed a workshop curriculum. Um, so it was kind of an introduction to alt text and alt text as poetry, and then um, a series of four writing exercises that um, allow people to start practicing describing an image and, and talking about it. And each of the exercises is oriented towards a specific question that has come up for us. So um, one is about um, kind of like subjectivity and audience. One is about length and priorities. Um, yeah, and, and now we're, the project is kind of expanding and morphing and um, we are wrapping up a workbook. So it's kind of a mm -hmm. self-guided version of the workshop that um, will exist in a number of different formats. Um, it will be available for free online as a Google Doc and Word document and audiobook. And then um, there will also be a print version and um, some PDFs and we're um, gonna have a Spanish language translation um, also available as a Word document and a Google Doc. Um, and then we are also working on a kind of part of the project called Alt Text Study Club, which is a blog that is kind of like gathering uh, interesting examples of alt text and description and kind of like commenting on them. Um, again, as a way to kind of think about what it means to like learn together or to like understand the variety of ways that um, an image description can be written um, rather than, yeah, I think there's a lot of kind of history of description that's really oriented towards objectivity and trying to be objective as a describer and this kind of idea that there is a kind of quote unquote right description for mm. um, an image. And so trying to uh, explore kind of like the pros and cons of different approaches and build a kind of collective toolkit around um, how we might describe images. Fascinating. Yeah, like Kayla mentioned, uh, we both work in communications in the art sector. And I was trained um, in image description actually by an audio describer who specialized in theater works, live performance works. And it was so fascinating because nowhere in the training that I received spoke about how to talk about race, how to talk about gender, and how to talk about disability. And it was like, oh, if, if you have a actor performing, you wouldn't describe what they look like unless it's relevant to the script. And it's like, well, what is relevant? How can we say that race is not relevant? How can we say that gender is not relevant? How can we say that disability is not relevant um, when racism, cis heteronormativity, the patriarchy and ableism are so ingrained in our society. You can't just say it's not important, quote unquote, to the script. Yeah, so it was a very interesting training um, because you learned a lot, but it also was this checkbox thing. And um, at Tangled, our policy is really that we make our image descriptions collaborative because there's no full way to for us as like creators, communicators, to give just one perspective in an image description, which makes the process longer, a little bit more arduous, which means we're a little bit less productive. Um, but I feel like things that what you're doing with alt text of poetry is kind of creating a framework for all of us to explore this on our own. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think I wanna go back to something that you were talking about in terms of describing race, gender, disability status, um, age, other, mm -hmm. you know, um, other kind of body characteristics. I think something that 
I've been thinking about recently, partially because of a conversation that I heard um, around a screening that Jordan Lord did with uh, Carolyn Lazard and Constantina Zavitsanos, is that I think people often focus around um, those kind of identity topics when people are in the image, but actually like my positionality and identity as a describer, um, like my whiteness, my class, my um, disability, like that's actually informing how I describe every image. It's just not mm -hmm. always so obvious. Um, and that, yeah, this, this kind of um, history in um, audio description and image description to um, kind of like gloss over that um, feels uh, really harmful. And mm -hmm. I think is a big, I think something that I'm really excited about is, um, well, yeah, especially that like a lot of times alt text or image description is unattributed. So it's not even clear who wrote the description. And so be having more transparency or clarity around like who wrote it and that could be you know five people that could be or and the process so like um yeah like and any guidelines that were used or something like that trying to like surface more information so that there's less of an assumption of like uh oh right like we just did it in this way that everybody does it and more like well okay i have a specific training i have a specific um yeah positionality and that's going to be super present in the descriptions that i write and um when i share that that maybe allows someone who's engaging with my descriptions to um form some of their own judgments about when and how they want to trust my description or, or what some of my biases might be when you do descriptive work um where might you disclose your those identity markers um, or where might you suggest that we disclose those type of things so i think it really depends on the scale of things like so on my personal instagram account for example like i think people probably would guess that i'm writing the descriptions and there's information about who i am pretty readily available online. I think for like kind of smaller or mid-sized um, organizations or groups, like having a place on a website or something like that, that kind of talks about access practices. I think there's the possibility of also like signing a description within an Instagram um, caption and also using for example, like first person language or that then allows for more to say things like, I'm not sure, but I think mm. it's a beaver, but it, you know, it could be a woodchuck or I looked it up later and I found out it was, um, you know, something else or, you know, mm. that it, it can also, you can build some of the, some language into the description itself that acknowledges, um, that, that you as a person are, are writing it. Um, and then I also think that there's, there's ways that it can be like, for example, on a blog or like news site where it's like, there's a, there's a writer associated, like I'm interested in having the writer write the description. Like sometimes those are different people who are doing those, those roles. So like, what does that mean? Or, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think definitely something that I've run up like, that yeah that comes up in a lot of the work that Bojan and I have done about this is that like the structures that we're working within are so flawed and mm -hmm. that yeah like I mean on Twitter I think this is changing but for a long time you had to go into your accessibility settings and turn on that you even wanted to write descriptions in order for the box to show up yeah. and mm -hmm. the way that it's been implemented on Instagram there's um Instagram and Facebook now there's a like AI that auto generates a description for any image that doesn't include alt text and for me like that was a moment where those platforms could have like surfaced that and kind of said this is the auto generated description like do you want to edit this um, because they're they're still quite 
limited. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, I feel like the approach they took is very much kind of like sweeping it under the rug. Like, we don't have you don't have to worry about writing a description now because we have this AI that's taking care of it. So like, don't mm-hmm. worry about it. Um, and yeah, I think that there's still, in terms of just like the infrastructure of the way things are built, like. I've seen a couple of sites that have space for multiple descriptions. Uh, The Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago is one where, um, yeah, it allows for for multiple descriptions and descriptions of different lengths. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, yeah, I mean, I think that's um, part of what I feel excited about is just like, there's trying to figure out like, yeah, what would, what would be helpful? What are different ways we could approach this? Um, what are different structures or, or practices for um, how to surface information and um, without like, well, no, that's kind of a, that's kind of a separate thing. I mean, I think I was going to say, I, I think as a, I experienced this with a lot of cited people who are new to alt text, which is like a kind of over description or like a, um, a sense of like, trying to describe everything and and um i think length is just a really tricky thing because i know a lot of screen reader users prefer kind of like a, a more concise alt text but again like not screen reader users are obviously not a monolith and so depending on the type of image and the context like different um lengths for information might be helpful and so like um yeah, there's just a lot of there's a lot of moving pieces in terms of like what might be what different people who are engaging with description want, what people who are writing, how they're approaching it, um, how, how those kind of groups overlap and collaborate. Totally, yeah, it's so important to name that. And um, if people listening or reading don't know, like I'm thinking of Instagram specifically, it doesn't even give you the option to write your alt text when you are creating a post right you you go in and you you write your caption you tag who's there you might tag the location and you have to go in and edit after it's posted to even put that alt text in there it's super buried Mm -hmm. there is a way to do it in the flow of posting but it truly could not be more subtle (laughs) it's like (laughs) it's this tiny gray text that says advanced settings and then you have to click on that and go in i mean it's yeah, again, it's just not built in a way that is promoting access at all. You know, Instagram, if you're listening, just put it right <laughs> underneath the caption box. Put it right there. And make it so that the contrast is legible. <laughs> it's like, make the text not light gray on a white background. Thank you. Yeah. Just just make it black text. Yeah. Um, one thing that you mentioned, uh, or that you said, was that structure is are so flawed. One thing that I've seen a lot in these like pandemic times is larger art institutions, larger art museums, um, kind of like promoting that they have like volunteers now working on image descriptions now that work is going digital. And for me, like that just seems so flawed. And um, could you kind of speak about a, your feelings on that, and then like B, kind of some ideas of how we counteract these notions of these larger structures using a flawed practice. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot there. <laughs> um, I think certainly like we're seeing some of the lack of prioritization of alt text. Um, alt text has existed since the 90s. It's really not new. Um, and lots of institutions, I would say, especially arts institutions have been very slow to, um, consider describing images as part of their role. Um, I think, so that's something that I sense in this is kind of like a, oh, well, now that we don't have all of these other things that we're asking people to do, we'll, we'll now, um, work on alt text. Um, and, and a sense of like, oh, well now online, yeah, more people are online. So there's kind of a different emphasis around online spaces. Again, where I feel like online spaces have been so important for lots of disabled people for 
a long time and there's this kind of like um renewed emphasis on that now that uh that's like a primary space of experience for non-disabled people um and yeah i think like i do really believe that like anyone can write an image description like i think sometimes people get kind of um caught up in this idea of expertise or like that um like I hear from a lot of people of like, oh, I know about alt text, but I just feel like I don't know how to do it, so I don't do it. Um, and so I feel excited about like a variety of people um, being part of the writing process. I know that that's also something that they did at MCA Chicago when they were um, kind of doing, initiating their um, alt text on their website was that they had these events called donuts for description where um, people from across the museum would would gather and um, write uh, alt text together and so that that feels kind of like exciting and collaborative and a way for like people in different parts of the institution to um, collaborate i think um for me it's also like the guidelines and directives are so important and so if people are like, if there's kind of a, a mass turn towards towards writing alt text, like what does that mean for like how people are being trained in that? What they're being told is a is a kind of quote unquote good description. Um, and I think actually something that I've been realizing is that I'm. I mean, I think there, there's sometimes like kind of a especially at some of these larger institutions that have huge image collections, you know, tens of thousands, if not more image, like maybe there's a baseline of description that needs to happen across the board. But I'm also really interested in kind of like a more project based description mode of like, oh, for this artist and for this exhibition, we're going to have uh, these people do the description and we're going to take this approach. And for mm. this um, project and this is something that's like more responsive to the type of image and the context um, and so I think that's another thing that comes up for me when I hear about these really large-scale description projects is that I'm like well what what's lost when we have like a kind of one-size-fits-all approach to describing every image in a collection or something like that and in terms of how we intervene in that <laughs> so you know a big question i think something that i personally have been doing is um i'm as an artist i'm often in a position where i'm being asked for images of my work and usually those images travel with some caption info um mm -hmm. like a photographer credit title medium material sometimes um and so i have been um including an image description when i send an image um when i'm feeling like i have more agency in the situation or have more energy to invest i will ask you know what is your alt text practice and try to kind of get into that with people um as a kind of like uh backup plan like I just include the image description in the caption that can just go wherever they would put the caption it's not always best for screen reader users to just have it in the caption rather than embedded in the alt text but it's also works for some people who use description who don't have don't use screen readers so there's kind of pros and cons to that but um yeah I've been interested in like the power that artists potentially have in their relationships with institutions around access and um, the ways that organizations or institutions are sometimes more responsive to requests from artists than even from like their own educators or access workers. Mm -hmm. um, and I think also when I send the description, uh, that's maybe a starting point you know like i'm i'm always open to to someone responding to that and being like oh hey like actually i'm interested in like x y and z description in this case or like you didn't talk about this which for me really feels important in this image um because i i've also heard from a lot of uh, people who use 
alt text and image descriptions that they're a little skeptical of artist generated descriptions because um, yeah, as artists, we're kind of very attuned with the intent of our image making and not necessarily like the impact that it might have or um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think that's something that I've and, and kind of like fits with a lot of thinking I have, which is that like, uh, I think of access as like everyone's responsibility. So it's, um, it's like, there's part of that responsibility rests with me as an artist, part of it rests with the curator, with the, um, you know, graphic designer, with the, you know, there's all of these different roles and ideally all of those people should be knowledgeable and invested in access and be kind of like collaborating and building on um, that work together. Right, not making it like the one disabled employee's job <laughs> to do that or the <laughs> one screen reader user's job within the organization to do all of that work. Totally. Yeah, and I think a lot of times artists, yeah, artists like, well, artists are often already very under-resourced and then also it's not always feasible for us to take on access work because yeah, we're not being compensated for it because our own access needs aren't being met because we don't have knowledge or training. Um, so it's, I think it's not, I don't want to like push that labor onto artists, but I think um, it's interesting for me to think of artists as kind of like part of the um, team, I guess, that's like working on making a, an artwork or an exhibition or an experience accessible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we could switch gears for a second. Speaking of hostile structures and inaccessible <laughs> structures, you both know where I'm going with this. Yes. Um, I am obsessed with your anti-stairs lounge club work. Um, and, you know, we might have a lot of Canadian listeners who <laughs> might not be so familiar with what the heck is the vessel? What is that? Why do we, why do we hate it? <laughs> so if you'd like to talk about that. Yeah. So uh, Anti-Stairs Club Lounge is kind of like a, there's been two versions of the project. It was initially created for um, an inaccessible exhibition space. Um, it's the gallery of a place called the Wissaic Project, and they have a um, seven floor exhibition space with no ramp or elevator access above the ground floor. And they do this big group exhibition every every summer that has like 50 to 70 artists. Um, and I was, yeah, just thinking about like what it means to engage with a, a inaccessible space like that. And, um, you know, I was thinking about like, oh, could I require that my work is shown on the ground floor? Or like, what are some different options that I have? And ended up making this installation that was the first iteration of Anti-Stairs Club Lounge that was an enclosed space on the ground floor of the building. And it had um, places to rest, it had chilled seltzer, there was some candy, reading materials, um, and it was behind a locked door. And in order to get access to the space, you signed in at the front desk saying, you wouldn't be going up the stairs in the exhibition space. So the, the lounge became a space that was like exclusively for people who were um, staying on the ground floor. Um, and so that was, that was kind of like the initial iteration of the project and it was up for two years there. Um, and then I started to hear these murmurs in, in New York City about this new structure that was being planned called The Vessel. Um, it was designed by Thomas Heatherwick and it's a building scale outdoor sculpture. Um, and it's, I think, 156 interconnected stairways. So it's basically this like basket-like um, structure of stairways and just interconnected stairways. It's just all stairs. I think it's um, 2,500 stairs. Um, and um, I think, I, like a lot of people, felt really angry about it. Um, I think part of my anger was that, you know, a lot of times I hear, oh, it can't be accessible because it's a his historic or existing structure, or oh, it can't be accessible because there isn't a budget. And this was um, 
a it, it's kind of a new development so it was an area that was previously a rail yard so there was there was a lot of flexibility about what could have happened there and um there was a 200 million dollar production budget so it was <sighs> a um yeah just this huge huge project and um yeah and and there was a um elevator that was part of the initial design um it's a little bit like confusing because it's not it doesn't work like a traditional building where it's like you would take an elevator up and then you could move around on the level because it's stairs up and down at every level so the the um i think the elevator accesses three of 80 platforms um and most of the time when they were running it um it was only they were bypassing two levels so it was only asking accessing one of 80 platforms, which is about 1% of the structure. Um, and so I, yeah, I wanted to do something that kind of brought Anti-Stairs Club Lounge to the vessel to protest that space and, and say, um, yeah, <laughs> this is horrible. Um, and so I gathered a group of about 50, um, people, some disabled, some non-disabled, um, and we kind of lounged in protest. Um, we, there were, well, one of the considerations is that um, the area around it is called a privately owned public space. It's a specific designation in New York City that's like different than a public park, and basically the person who owns that space or the company that owns that space has full control over the rules of what happens there. And so um, I wanted to design the lounge in a way that was very hard to point to as not allowed and also like easy to pack up if we were asked to leave. Um, so instead of like building a lounge structure, we wore these like bright orange beanies with a crossed out stairs symbol. Um, instead of signs, I made these newspapers that had an article that Kevin Gotkin wrote about the vessel inside, but when someone's reading them, the kind of exterior part of it functions as signage that says Anti-Stairs Club Lounge. Um, I utilized some existing like tables and seating there, but brought, um, cushion, brought extra cushions and snacks. Um, and yeah, and similar to the other version of it, um, there was like, in order to be in the lounge, participants signed a, a document that said, um, as long as I live, I will not go up a single step of the vessel. <laughs> That's amazing. So That's good. amazing. I really suggest uh, <laughs> listeners or readers Google that if you're interested, because I know there are photos, right, from, from that event. Yeah, and the photos on my website have, have descriptions. Beautiful. Obsessed. We'll link those in the show notes, folks, for those of you who are reading the transcript or wanting this in the show notes for more info. So when you talk about lounging as a form of protest, which I love, um, I know that rest is built into your work in other ways. Um, and I think people are really interested in concepts of rest right now in this pandemic, maybe folks who hadn't thought about rest politically before. Um, do you want to talk a bit more about how rest shows up in your work and in your life? Yeah, I think um, I started noticing how different my body felt if I was even able to pause and sit down, like standing and walking for long periods is is really draining for me and if i have a chance to sit um yeah it can really like kind of change my pain levels for the day and I, it can be a really different experience for me and so i started to be hyper aware of seating options as i was kind of like moving around new york city um and that's really where i yeah my interest in rest kind of started was it was like kind of in being able to physically pause um, and just noticing the scarcity of seating um, and places to rest. Um, and yeah, and I think there's a lot of people who are doing really interesting work um, about this. I love the, the work of the NAP ministry. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend following that um, them on Instagram or on Twitter. 
Um, and also I'm thinking about some of the writing of um, Johanna Hedva about um, rest and protest, um, their recent essay about um, kind of like talking about the type of protest that happens when everyone stops or everyone's in bed. Um, but yeah, I think I, um, yeah, and then also just thinking about like my own relationship to protest and, and different forms of protest and feeling like um, marches and like kind of long periods of standing are not super accessible to me and, and that a lot of times protest is really oriented around those things when there's also such a rich history of sit-ins and um, kind of like other forms of, of protest. And so thinking about, yeah, like what does it mean to, to protest and also um, care for our body minds and um, yeah, I think, and and so a big part of that, the work that I've done around that is making benches where, so I, um, yeah, I was doing all this research about why there weren't more benches in art, art spaces. And because um, I, I think, and part of that was kind of this feeling that I had that like a lot of access is really complex and long-term, but like more benches in a gallery feels like we could have that like tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, um, but like we could do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and through my research, what I was hearing from a lot of people is that it's it was actually curators who were often the barrier to seating in galleries that curators sometimes have kind of like a vision for what an exhibition is supposed to look like. And there are these like sight lines and um, there's supposed to be this vista and that, that benches are seating like interrupt that, um, which is Amy Hamry pointed out, like the, it's a really wild like layering of ableism of like kind of this hyper prioritization of vision then um, kind of like pushing out these op opportunities for rest. Mm -hmm. um, so I was like, oh, but if I make the seating the artwork, that's a way that we can get more, more um, seating in. And so I've been making these benches um, that have text on them. The first ones I made said, this exhibition have asked me to stand for too long, sit if you agree. Um, another one just said, I'd rather be sitting, sit if you agree. Uh, some of the newer ones said, uh, it was hard to get here, rest here if you agree, here to lounge, lounge if you agree. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I think just, I mean, a lot of my work is also kind of like playful or uses humor. Um, like, I think for me, the humor in those pieces is just that it's like so obvious and, and yeah. people are already kind of saying that with their bodies in museums. If you tune into it, like I'll often go to museums and like the benches are very full, like, mm -hmm. um, and so just kind of making that even more explicit um, that that's something that, yeah, is, like creates access. And the, the title of that series is, um, Do You Want Us Here or Not? Um, mm. Again, kind of like thinking about the ways that there's often kind of this rhetoric around like welcoming or inclusion or um, wanting disabled people to be in a space, but then even this like super, super baseline um, form of access is not happening. Yeah, I had a, a chance to sit on I'd rather be sitting, sitting, you agree, at the Flex Factory in New York in the summer of 2019. Um, and I was trying to just live in the moment and I didn't take a picture. And like, it had like burned in my brain. I'm like, I wish that I had just handed my phone to someone and asked them to take a photo instead of trying to be this like holier than thou, live in the moment. <laughs> but you know. You'd live and you learn. You would have yeah. written an amazing image description. <laughs> so good. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because I feel like the, the benches almost encourage that in some way because the text is covered up once you're sitting on it. Mm -hmm. Like once you're once you're in it, you're just you just have the bench and you have the, the rest and the relaxation. Um, though I've done some versions of it where the text is like a, a pattern on a cushion and then it repeats in mm -hmm. kind of a different way. But yeah. yeah, so we are we are coming to the end of our time. I feel like I've garnered so much 
knowledge from you and kind of inspiration to bring in to my own practice. So I'm sure folks who are listening or reading these transcripts can say the same. So I, I will say a massive thank you. And then we're going to round up with two questions and then we ask all of our guests. So thank you for your time. And, and our second to last question is what is your vision, your hope, your desire for an art world of the future? It's hard. It's a hard question. There's a lot. There's, um, I think, I think part of what is hard for me about the question is I think I spend a lot of time living in the realm of like, um, kind of achievable goals. There's like, I have kind of a pragmatism to my approach, which is like, what's kind of within reach when I, th and when I think about the kind of long-term things that I want, um, yeah, they're, they're so expansive and they're so entrenched in capitalism and white supremacy and ableism, you know, all, all of these, all of these um, deeply intertwined systems. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think I, I would really love, I think for me, I really love the experience of, experiences of connection I've had with other disabled people and whether that's through being present together in physical space and digital space and also like the type of connection that comes through having a shared experience or like um yeah witnessing something together in some way um or or asynchronously in terms of time um and so I would love for there to be more of that I've been in spaces where I've had that and it's felt so transformative and also just made me want it some more I'm thinking of the the um performance festival in New York I want to be with you everywhere um which was this amazing kind of four days of of that type of connection um and yeah was was like so thrilling and and also made me desire so much more of it yeah. No, I can't wait until we can gather again um, <laughs> in person. But, you know, you were saying when we talked before, seeing what's possible now in terms of what's offered remotely is unreal because disabled folk have been asking for this forever. And, you know, only now it's like we're, we're wanted here because everybody has to live in these ways. Yeah. And I really hope that that doesn't go away that that the the option for remote participation like stays in place even when um in-person participation is possible and that there there that remains like a valued form of participation and not um kind of secondary to in-person experiences amazing and then our very our very last question and um, the world is very difficult to walk through right now with all of the experiences we're sharing, all the information we're getting inundated with every single day. That is always negative. Um, what has brought you joy recently? I love jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> um, <Yes. laughs> um, I've always really loved jigsaw puzzles, but I really like just um i will i think my apartment in new york is pretty small and i figured out with foam core boards i can kind of like set up a good temporary puzzling situation on the floor um and i've been buying like used vintage puzzles and there's some fun imagery and um yeah i think like having a hobby or activity where i'm like um, can do with my partner and, um, or sometimes I'll puzzle remotely with a friend, like we'll both get the same puzzle and do it together <laughs> in different places, um, awesome. has just been like, yeah, just a nice thing to have in my home space, um, since I've been home so much. Crip Times is presented as a part of the Wheels on the Ground podcast network. This podcast is produced by us and supported by Tangled Art Plus Disability and Bodies in Translation. 
If you enjoyed this interview, we release new episodes every Monday wherever good podcasts can be found.